This is a reading from the Holy Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ according to John chapter 20, verse 19 and 31. When it was evening on that day, the first day of the week, and the doors of the house where the disciples had met were locked for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. After he said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples rejoiced when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, so I send you. When he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you retain the sins of any, they are retained. But Thomas, who was called the twin, one of the twelve, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see the mark of the nails in his hands, and put my finger in the mark of the nails, and my hand in his side, I will not believe. A week later, his disciples were again in the house, and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were shut, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here and see my hands. Reach out your hand and put it in my side. Do not doubt, but believe. Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have come to believe. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may come to believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that through believing, you may have life in his name. The Gospel of the Lord. Father, I pray that you would add a blessing to your word, that somehow, uh, through the liturgy of the word, that you can be with us in a way that transforms our minds, our understandings, and that you would lead us into newness of life. Through Christ our Lord. Amen. You may be seated. So, I am going to preach this, and it's going to be a little bit unorthodox, because the idea is taking Thomas and using Thomas as a metaphor. But I hope what I share with you, I hope you guys can take this and run with it, and I hope I don't get into too much trouble. So the title of this message is Neo-Evangelical, Trusting Our Way Into a New Evangelicalism. When I was in... um, a meeting one time in, in uh, Tulsa, or no, I'm sorry, in Chicago, they, they debated whether or not we as a communion should be using the word evangelical because it's so loaded right now in our culture. There's so much baggage. Right now, if you ask most people who or what is an evangelical, they would tell you evangelicals are the ones that got Trump elected, right? And evangelicals, I just saw this in the Washington Post, we're the ones we are the ones who continue to support Donald Trump after his approval rating has fallen. And so right now that's what people think of when they think of the word evangelical. But I want to offer a new definition of being evangelical. So I'm going to call this a neo-evangelicalism. And I hope that this idea, much like how 12 disciples, 11, propagated something that changed the world, I'm hoping that we here can propagate an idea that redefines evangelicalism. You you guys down with that? Okay. I gotta start by asking you this question. Have you ever 
been distrusted? Has anyone ever treated you with skepticism or they've dismissed you? Because it's really hard to share life with people who don't trust you. And um, I was thinking about a moment from my childhood that scarred me. When I was a kid, I found a shark's tooth on the beach and it was a real shark's tooth. But I showed it to all my family members that were vacationing with us and no one believed me. I, I, I knew this was a shark's tooth and I kept showing it to all the members of my extended family. And I had people in my family say, That's, they dismissed me so quickly, that's not a shark's tooth. And I showed it to someone who knew about shark's teeth, uh, who was a native Floridian, and they affirmed me. And I'll never forget that. I felt so good as a kid when I said, this is a shark's tooth, and my whole family denied it and said, no, it's not. They didn't listen to me. And finally, a native Floridian said, that is a shark's tooth. It's just fossilized. You found something unique. Guess what? I still have that shark's tooth today. I keep it in my treasure trove. It means something to me because it represents a moment of my life when I was young, like my son's age. And I, I found a shark's tooth, but no one believed me. All right. Jill Griffin wrote in Forbes magazine, she said, I know people who spent an entire lifetime building trust and then lost it in an hour. And I felt like that statement kind of resonated with me because maybe you know folks that that has happened to, or maybe that's happened to you. You, you spend your whole life trying to earn people's trust, build trust, but you can lose it so quickly. Like I sometimes wonder, could that happen to any of us? Like we can lose people's trust so quickly because of something in our lives. But trust is so vital. And this is really important because resurrection life is all about new creation. It's about a whole new world, but that new world is hinged upon trust. And so if you look at your text, like I don't, you don't have to read it right now, but that John text, what stuck out to me in the beginning was the fact that Jesus breathed on these folks. Imagine what it would be like to smell Jesus' breath in your face, right? Like this is a very intimate thing. But here's what I think is going on. John, from the beginning of his gospel, is retelling the story of Genesis, right? So John starts his gospel the way Genesis begins, in the beginning, right? And here we see Genesis 2. In Genesis 2-7, we read that the Lord God formed man from the dust. And what did God do? He breathed into the nostrils of, of humankind. And that is what made us become a living being. Jesus is doing this very thing, right? In John 20, he breathes into them. The new Adam, the last Adam, breathes life. That's why Paul says in Corinthians, the first man, Adam, became a living being, and the last Adam is a life-giving spirit. And so here you have Jesus breathing in the new life of the new created order. This is Genesis 2.0, and he's creating a whole new world, right? A whole new world. A whole new... It's, that's what it is. But, but in Aladdin's A Whole New World, what is, you remember that song? You remember the movie, right? It's about to come out again. But in that movie, Aladdin shows up on the porch and he's offering Jasmine this new world. But that new world is only available if she what? Do you trust me? He starts it all with, do you trust me? And she has to think about it because she's skeptical, because she has some cynicism, some uh, suspicious tendencies in her. But the new world can only be accessed, accessed by, by Jasmine if she trusts Aladdin. That was my corny part of the sermon, but <laughs> trust is what we need 
for the resurrected new order to come into fruition. But trust is at an all-time low in the church. In Christianity Today, author Michelle Van Loon, she wrote an article that kind of hit me. It was called The Cynicism Trap, Why Trusting Fellow Christians is a Spiritual Discipline. And in her article, she basically makes the case that, that outsiders don't trust the church anymore because the church doesn't trust the church anymore, right? Distrust from the outside is merely a reflection of distrust going on from the inside. And this is what's happening. Right now in the church, we have the highest level of suspicion over each other. Um, I, we saw this coming. When I was growing up, I was always taught that we were the, the real church, right? Now, it wasn't explicitly said this way, but it was kind of implied. We are a true church. We have the spirit. They would say it like this. We're, we're a, a live church. They are a dead church, right? And it was implied, where we started to distrust each other. The Reformation was needed, but unfortunately, some of the fruit of that is that later on, you know, 500 years later, distrust would be at an all-time high in the church. And, and here's what happens. Because we're broken in our trust towards one another, our witness is broken. Because we don't trust each other, and this is what she was talking about in her article, because we don't trust each other, Everybody on the outside looks at us and says, well, you guys don't even trust each other. Why should we trust you? And so our witness is absolutely hinged upon our unity. And that's what Jesus says in John 17 when he prays for the church, that they may all be one so that the world may believe. All right. So here's the, here's the crux of my message today. And, and I think, I hope that something sinks in here. I'm going to read to you. Uh, a theologian, Reverend Dr. Nancy Pittman. And this is all her thinking, and it radically shifted my mind. Nancy Pittman said, here's the real problem with Thomas. In rejecting the disciples, in rejecting their good news, their evangelon, euangelion. I like Eva's name because it's rooted in that word. Eva, evangelical, evangelon. She says, in rejecting the disciples' good news about what they had seen, Thomas rebuffs the very friends with whom he has shared life for so long. In John's gospel and his epistle that grows out of it, love and trust within the faithful community are the significant expression of the work of Christ in their midst. Let me pause for a second. You guys remember that famous text that's read at every wedding? Love is patient, love is kind, right? You know the part that we always skip over? Love always trusts. And so here you have the loving community, the faithful community, and John's point, his whole thesis, really, if you get to the end of John's gospel, it's about a trusting community. And when we don't have that trust, everything falls apart. So here's Thomas's sin. This is what she's saying. In John's gospel, it's all about trust because that's the work of Christ in their midst. Yet Thomas's words, especially in the Greek, carry a powerful sting. Essentially, Thomas says this, There's no way I will believe you unless I see it for myself. Their eyes and their fingers are not enough for him. So Thomas abrogates, he, in, he invalidates the work of Christ in their midst. End quote. I don't know if, if that hits you like it hit me, but that's powerful. Because here's what I think she's saying. We've misunderstood Thomas. Thomas did not doubt Jesus. 
he doubted the beloved community of Jesus. Thomas did not invalidate the presence of Christ. He invalidated the witness of the presence of Christ from Christ's own beloved community. There's a fire in my bones over this, right? He, He doubted and invalidated the community, not Jesus, but the community. Thomas didn't doubt the possibility of good news, the evangelical witness. He was just suspicious that that witness could come from anybody other than himself. He was so fixated on his own sensibilities. He only trusted his own sensibilities. If it wasn't established in his ocular, audible, somatic sensation, then he didn't trust it. In other words, he didn't receive what he couldn't feel. And I think that is the state of the church right now. We are the new Thomases who only accept what we can feel. We only receive what we can understand. We only validate what we ourselves experience. Validity is always in question because you got a bunch of people from every aspect of the church. Because when I'm in a sacramental world, they have a certain viewpoint of the other. But guess what? When I was in an evangelical context, all they did was, oh, you're turning Catholic, right? They would make comments like that. Because we, we're, we're like Thomas. We only receive what we can feel. And we reject the witness of the beloved community that Jesus died to create. So, using this working metaphor, I hope this is good. I, I, hope, this is, I hope there's some substance to this. Here's what I think a neo-evangelical is. Neo-evangelicals desire the blessing Right? Jesus said, blessed are those. It's a new beatitude. Neo-evangelicals desire the blessing of trusting what others have seen, even if we haven't yet. So this is the new way I'm going to, if evangelicals are around in 20 years, here's what I think they will be. They will be people of the beloved community. They will be people in the church, the church capital C, who trust what others have seen, even if they haven't yet. Let me give it to you this way. All of this was one time foreign to me. And it was foreign to you probably. Until you received what somebody else was witnessing to you about. That is when something changed in your life. And it seems to me that the default disposition within the Western church is exactly like Thomas. So many church people within these communities trust only their sensibilities. Unless it is established through them, they deny its validity. And man, this is everywhere. I would love to say this is only a Pentecostal problem or an evangelical problem or a liturgical sacramental problem, but it's not. These tribes are so fixated on themselves that they really struggle to accept the validity of the other within the church. We're like Thomas. We only receive what we have experienced to the detriment of our faith. Can I get an amen? All right, I'm going to keep going with this. Neo-evangelicals refuse the trap of skepticism. We refuse the trap of cynicism and distrust. Instead, we honor what we have in common with other Christians, and we offer them dignity and, I'm going to say this with a capital V, and validity. We offer them validity. We do not rob them of their validity just because we haven't seen what they have seen yet. 
Dallas Willard said, we can begin to, in practice, assume that Christ and his friends, the Father and the Spirit, are building the church. We can begin to recognize it and speak and communicate and love across the lines and contribute to the success in God of others who are different from us. I like that. Contribute to the success of others, right? Here's another thing. Neo-evangelicals acknowledge the presence of Christ in the midst of our brothers and sisters. So what, one of the things that Thomas didn't do was he, he said, you guys are saying that Jesus was in your midst, and I'm saying I don't think he was. If that isn't the state of the church right now, I don't know what is, right? You got a bunch of people saying, we got Jesus. Yes, we do. We got Jesus. How about you? And our answer is no, you don't. Only we do. Only we have Jesus. Only we have presence. Pentecostals thoroughly believe that what makes their church valid, presence. Sacramentals believe what we have, presence. Meanwhile, what they deny in the other, just like Thomas, is presence. Each saying to the other, you don't have presence, we do. Don't you see how Thomas is us? We are Thomas. Thomas was an evangelical impediment. He was so quick to judge and reject the presence of Christ in the midst of his brothers and sisters. He was so quick to deny and dismiss the message of the good news coming from the beloved community that his Lord was forming. So neo-evangelicals, I believe this is you, neo-evangelicals reject what I call cul-de-sac Christianity, this false assumption that God lives on our block. When in reality, we know that Jesus has always been bigger than our ideas about him. We know that the spirit is always moving in ways that we can't control. Uh, Even though we claim a monopoly on the spirit, she blows where she wants to. So neo-evangelicals reject locked door Christianity. Us for no more Christianity. Because we know that the resurrected Christ will walk through locked doors anyways. Which is what happened in our text. I can wrap it up here if you want, but I have one more. I don't know if you speak for everyone, but I will if you want. The internet people are saying yes. So we embrace the presence of Christ in the midst of our brothers and sisters, right? That's neo-evangelical. And finally, neo-evangelicals receive Christ's invitation to touch and encounter the whole body of Christ, right? What did Thomas do? He was invited by Jesus to touch his body. Impairments and all, because the resurrected Christ has holes in his hands and feet and holes in his side. So there were impairments. Amos Young calls that the marks of impairments on the resurrected Christ. So, so here's what we do, right? Neo-evangelicals, look at the church, the body of Christ, in its entirety, impairments and all, and we willingly receive the invitation of Jesus. It's Jesus who invites us, and we receive his invitation to touch the whole body because we know that when we touch the whole body, we will encounter Christ in a way that we haven't before. Neo-evangelicals believe that when we're willing to embrace humility and step outside our comfort zone, We will encounter Christ in ways and in rooms that we never imagined. You probably never, well, I can say I. I never imagined I'd be touching Christ's body in this room. But Jesus has a way of getting through our locks. This is why, oh, I think this is good. I could be wrong. But think about this. Mary, last week, is told don't touch him. 
right? Don't touch Jesus. Jesus tells Mary, don't touch me. And then all of a sudden, now Thomas is being invited to touch. So why is it that Mary's told don't touch and Thomas is told touch? Here's my theory. My theory is, is because Mary needed to let go because Jesus had to witness too. He tells her that. He says, I'm not done doing this yet. You need to go tell my disciples, tell my brothers that I'm risen. So Mary needed to let go because her part of the equation was to witness too. But Thomas needed to touch because his part of the evangelical balance was to receive from. So the evangelical balance, this is the evangelical synergy. This is the holy synergy of evangelical unity is both to witness to and receive from. We have to be merry sometimes and let go and, and actually share our witness. And at other times, we need to be like Thomas and receive from. Does this make sense yet? So here's what I'm saying. There's going to be times, this is, what, this is why I don't like it when people marginalize evangelicals or liturgicals or sacramental folks. Because there will be a moment where we need to receive from the evangelical church. This is what Robert Weber talks about in his book, Common Roots. He says the evangelical spirit has always been at work in the church and we need evangelicals. You know why? Because evangelicals own it. It's all about personal pronouns. My Jesus, my Savior, Thomas, my Lord, my God. We need that. So there's going to be times where you are called to share like Mary. Let go. Witness too. But then there's also going to be times, and this is the evangelical balance, where we are not called to share and witness to, but we're told to, to sit down and receive from, where we need to let Catholics and Orthodox and Lutherans and Methodists and, all, and, and the, the brethren and, and the Mennonites, and we need to let them all share with us their part of their witness. So sometimes we're Mary and sometimes we're Thomas, and that's exactly the balance of evangelical unity. There's a sacred blessing waiting for us in communion when we're willing to receive this co-union, when we're willing to receive and share with the other. In, um, I think, 2016 or 15, I was at New York Theological Seminary, and I was studying under this guy named Bishop Wayne Busada. And here's a quote from him that I think speaks directly to this issue. Convergent churches are looking beyond these artificial barriers to encourage, appreciate, and learn more about the uniqueness found in the various bodies of faith. Jesus' prayer in John 17 was for the church to become one, one as the body of Christ, not through compromise of doctrine and dogma, but unity under the person of Jesus. Jesus calls for unity in the midst of our diversity. As such, this unity does not require any church to dismiss their unique expression as Christ's body, but calls them to appreciate and embrace the variety of beauty of the church worldwide and throughout history. Convergence and convergent churches seem to appreciate the investment that the various streams of the church provide. The call of convergent church is to be one, move together in portraying a people united under Christ to reach a hurting world. Um, I know I'm preaching to the choir here, but sing choir sing like this is what you're called to do take this message and run with it uh, there's a i think i'm going to skip that and i'll just finish with this I, I was 
meeting with the, the international group one last time yesterday. And there was a, a young lady who, we were talking about division in the world. And, you know, they all come from different countries, Nepal, India, Pakistan, um, you name it. But one of the things that we all had in common was an us versus them dichotomy within our native country. And in the end, this young lady spoke up and she said, we need more people to unite us. In the us versus them dichotomy, she said, we need more folks to really lean into the us. And I smiled at her and I, I agreed completely, but I added one little footnote to it. I said, yes, and we need more people to realize and recognize that there is no them. There's only us. And here's when we know that there's only us. In moments of crisis and peril, when we see great tragedy, right, that's when we tend to unite. I'm, I'm thinking about the Avengers. You got a, a group of people who can't get along at all until they have a reason to. When they realize that, that the survival of the whole earth is hinged upon Hulk getting along with Thor and, and Captain America getting along with Tony Stark. Like, it's when they realize that there is no us or them. There's only us. That's when the world gets saved. And Richard Rohr says, either our faith moves beyond its tribal past or it has no chance of saving the world. The convergent church is gathering the scriptural, contemplative, scholarly, and justice-oriented wisdom from every part of the body of Christ. What's he saying? He's saying convergent church is when you got sacramental folks, when you got those focused on historical liturgies. Convergent church is this, this sort of fiery Pentecostalism. Convergent church is this sort of Methodist purified holiness Convergent church is the peacemaking way of the Anabaptists. Convergent church is when we realize that all of these streams can come together in a radical, unique way, right? But here's the warning of Roar. Unless we come together, the world won't be saved. And I believe that. I, I'm not, I don't think I'm exaggerating. I think that's what Jesus is saying in John 17. That, that they may be one so that the world can believe in the one who will save the world. Right, And so that's what we're trying to do. This is what James K. Smith calls the accumulated wisdom of the body of Christ. He says, when our worship has a common form, it reinforces our oneness and unity, which is especially important for the church's witness in our post-Christian age. Historic Christian worship represents the accumulated wisdom of the body of Christ, led by the Spirit into truth, just as Jesus promised. One river, many wells. We have to dig deep enough until we find the river that connects us all. And I will say this, I'll, I'll echo Roar. If we don't do this, then not only will this church shut down, every church will. Now I hear Jen S. Kim say, they will be relegated to the dustbins of history if they don't learn how to come together. So I don't, I don't really know what the future of the church is going to look like. I think that the, those who study sociology and who have prophesied a gloomy future for the church may be on to something. Dallas Willard says that the gates of hell will never prevail against the church, but many 501c3s are going to close their doors. I believe that. But I also think that never before, here's another quote, have the walls of the church been so thin. And guess what? Even when we have locked doors, Jesus walks through them anyways. And so right now what we're doing is we're entering into a new way of being an evangelical, 
no longer is being evangelical about our tribe, our group, uh, our president. But evangelical needs to now become an ecumenical thing, an ecumenical identity, where we become a Neo-Thomas and we receive the witness of our brothers and sisters. I'll finish with this and I'll say amen. A convergent Christian is simply a neo-evangelical, a new Thomas who has repented of doubting his or her brothers and sisters' witness, who now acknowledges the presence of Christ in the midst of the other. This happens because Christ has penetrated our locked doors and has invited us to reach out and encounter his body in new ways, impairments and all. We believe this to be a hopeful and humble new way of being evangelical in our time. Thank you for listening to the Sacred Commons podcast. You can find out more about us at our website, thesacredcommons.com. If you feel connected to this ministry in any way, we appreciate your support. We appreciate your partnership. It helps us continue to do this work in the city of Youngstown, where we are happy to be launching a new church plant. Finally, why don't you come and join us for a service? 323 Wick Avenue at the beautiful St. John's Episcopal Church. We meet in the chapel. Come and worship with us. We'd love to see you there. Now may the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine on you and be gracious to you. The Lord turn his face toward you and give you peace. Amen.